going to be reading a portion of Scripture. We're going to get back into 1 Samuel today. And so let me say very quickly a few things about Samuel. The book of Samuel and the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles were not written in some kind of chronological order. Most of them were oral traditions that were passed down, then later they were collected and they were edited very carefully with the oversight of the Holy Spirit. So we know that what we have is accurate and perfectly communicates to us what we need to know about this period of history. It's not just a historical record. It's much better than that. It's history so that you will know why we're here today in El Paso worshiping God, thanking Him for His goodness and His mercy, singing our songs, saying our confessions. We've got a cross in our building for a reason. We have a Savior that we want to magnify and glorify every single day of our lives, but especially on Sunday when we gather with the people of God. And it's because Samuel is about the coming of the King, the advent of the great King. And that great King was David. But you, you know how people are. He just doesn't, David didn't float down from heaven on a parachute. Neither did Jesus. They were both men. And David was a flawed man. His predecessor Saul was a flawed man. But in all of that mess, God was at work bringing to you and I the true king, David, whose son is Jesus, who is our present king. Amen? Okay. We should start off the new year with some amens. Don't you think, Google? Okay. Andale. You lead the chorus. So turn to your Bible. Let's read this passage from 1 Samuel. We're going to pick up where we left off last, uh, last semester. 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel and sent the rest of the men home. He took 2,000 of those chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul, seeing this as an advantage, he took the ram's horn and he blew it throughout the land saying, Hebrews, hear this revolt, up, rise up and revolt. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army, this is everybody, was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines mustered their troops, a mighty army, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. Gotta love the way the Bible paints these pictures. 
They camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw what the tight spot that they were in. They looked out and they oh my God, what are we going to do? And because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, listen, hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and cisterns. Some crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're going to look at this section of, of um, 1 Samuel. I'm not going to go in. There's a lot, of, a lot of stuff that fills in. We'll go look at that next week, the battle that Jonathan makes, the foolish oath that Saul takes uh, in the middle of a victory. We don't know what he's thinking. There's all of this background, but right here, right now, the nation has been successful. They have a new king, a king that was chosen by God. We think it's a king that the people chose, but that's not true. We saw that God chose this king. He did give them a king like the other nations. Saul was a big man. He was tall, head and shoulders above the others. He came from a warrior clan, a wealthy family. It shows his genealogy. These were great warriors in Israel, all of the Kish family. And Saul stood out among all the people of Israel as a mighty warrior. But he had some flaws. And you know, scholars say, well, his character was flawed. And I read a lot of commentaries, and a lot of commentators said his character's flawed. I want to suggest that maybe it wasn't his character. Character's, you know, something that you are and you display. But I think it's more than that. Sure, it's his character, but it's also... When I, read these te- when I read these stories, I identify with Saul. Why? I don't know. Maybe because I have bad character. I don't know. But I don't want to measure my character against Saul. What I want to do is look and see what did Saul do in contrast to what God wanted his people to do, listen, from the Garden of Eden till now. The story has never changed. And that thing that Saul failed to do was to trust God. He promised Saul, if you do this, that, and the other thing, I'll be with you, I'll make you a family dynasty. Saul refused. He refused to repent. He refused to turn back to God. He tried to work things out in his own way. And I'll tell you folks, if that does not resonate with you, you just don't know yourself. I resonate with that. So I resonate with Saul. He's as much a believer as I am, which is kind of scary. So we're going to look at three things, a man after God's own heart. So these three things, we're going to look at the heart that God rejects. Now remember, he's not rejecting a person. He's rejecting the actions and the attitude of this man, Saul. The heart God seeks, and finally, the heart of God. Heart of God, our King. This is what we want to see. So, you know, we've, uh, Dawson and Marcos has been after me to do these outlines like this. And I'm working hard because I want mine to be better than theirs. <laughs> and I want you all to tell them Chuck's outlines are better than them, better than yours. Y- you need to, fig- because they've been telling me I need to be more organized. So here we go. 
The heart God rejects. The heart God rejects, you'll see, and we read this text in a minute, in, starting in verse 8, you'll see a reaction. A reaction by the king and by the people that were following the king, a reaction to fear, doubt. They became impatient and it led to disobedience. Look at verse 8. Saul waited seven days for Samuel. Samuel had told him to wait. And when I get there, we're going to make the sacrifice. We're going to attack the Philistines. We're going to destroy them. But you must wait for me. As Samuel instructed. But Samuel didn't come. He he didn't show up in Saul's mind when he should have been there. Saul realized his troops are rapidly slipping away. He's looking around and his soldiers are are scared to death. You can understand why. Completely outnumbered. And the Philistines don't want to just come over and change their political system. They want to slaughter them. And so there is great fear. So he demanded, he told the the priesthood and all those people that were hanging out that did the religious stuff, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. And just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to meet him and to welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? Does that sound familiar? That's right out of Genesis chapter 3, almost word for word. What have you done? You've refused to trust me. You've refused to wait and be patient. You've disbelieved my promises for you and for the people that you're ostensibly leading. What have you done? Saul replied, listen to this. This isn't you and me. I don't know. Maybe we're from another planet. Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal and I haven't even asked God for his help, the Lord's help. So I felt, listen, compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel explained, exclaimed. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. Had you kept it, listen, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul does the same thing that human beings have done since we were created. Refuse to trust the Lord, go our own way, think things out for ourselves, react in fear, often self-interest. We're terrified of everything that's around us, especially the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because he's telling us God is not good. He doesn't want the best for you. And you can't trust him. And if you can't trust God, you better be afraid. Eh? You better be terrified if you can't trust God. If there's a God up there and you can't trust him, you should be afraid. 
But that's not what Adam and Eve knew. They knew he was there. Saul knew he was there. David knows. You know. I know that he's there. We confess it. The Apostles' Creed, we say it. But fear and the reaction to fear can, can overwhelm us. Let me give you some principles very quickly. This is important because it's themes that run through the Scripture that connect like uh, what Richard Pratt used to tell us, a web of multiple reciprocity. Isn't that cool? You ought to love it. Write that down. You can impress your friends. To, I mean, they will just not know what to say. Did you know that the Bible is full of multiples of reciprocity? Not that funny, huh? Okay. As the king, first one, as the king and the leaders go, so goes the nation. God's people are a community. In, a, in the West, we have a very strong sense of individualism, which is good as far as it goes, but it can be not helpful sometimes. We either stand or we fall together, especially in the church. Jesus sent his guys out two by two. He had a group, a cadre of 12. He had a larger group of 70. He had his three inner circle. You cannot go it alone. God didn't mean for you to go it alone. He means for you to be in church on Sunday. He means for you to be in Bible studies whenever you can. He means you to be out there in your community with unbelievers as much as you can, maybe more than with believers. Because we are made for that. We are not made to be isolated and on our own. And humanity in general will stand and fall together. The church will stand or fall together. And as our leaders go, so we go, politically, nationally, in church, and that's where I'm going to focus. Fear, second thing, fear is contagious. You know, there's something about fear. I don't know what it is, but, you know, if everybody around you is afraid, you get afraid. And we've got a lot of soldiers here, many of our members and regular attenders that have been in the military and law enforcement, they know what that fear is. And if you, as an officer, maybe even a platoon leader, I don't know, an enlisted person, it doesn't matter. But if you panic and you start throwing up, the, oh God, they're going to kill us. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. What happens to the guys next to you? Everybody starts saying, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Until one person, all it takes is one to slap the guy. Shut up. Let's go. And there's power in that. You see, there's, fear is contagious, but so is courage. So is faith. Why God wants us together. Go it alone, you're going to crash and burn. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many books on, from John Calvin that you have, or if you've memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I have. <laughs> you need people. You need people that are around. You need leaders that will be courageous even when everybody else isn't. This is what they needed. Third thing, you've got to be able to assess a threat. I wish we could get some of our military folks up here, police, uh, whatever, and, and tell you that there's a, there's a reality to threat assessment. When you look at a threat, especially God's people, you should be wise. You should be able to look at the threat, take the threat, and put it up over next to Scripture and next to what you're hearing in church and next to whatever other things are in your life, and be wise and look at that threat. Is this threat real? 
Or is it imagined? Or it is some combination of the both. Maybe it's really real, but it's way over there. I can't do anything about that. But now with news media and social media and all this, the threats are, where are the threats? For all of us, even in the church, where are the threats? They're not out there. Right? They're right here. In fact, they're so close to you that you can't get it out of your face. And so we hear constantly these screams and this cacophony of be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. And pick your political issue, pick your thing, whatever it is you want. COVID, masks, politics, Trump, Biden, I don't care who it is. Pick it. It's screaming at you, be afraid. And if you're not afraid, be overly concerned. See, people say, I'm not afraid. I'm just concerned. But you're mad. You're so mad that you can't even think straight. Now we hate people. We don't just reject their ideas. We hate them. They're not just off maybe in their philosophies. They're evil. They're corrupt. They're terrible. And if we don't do something, the whole world's going to be destroyed and the church is being persecuted. None of you are being persecuted. Now, if you want to disagree, let's disagree. But nobody in this room is being persecuted. Oh, you might, you know, somebody might say, "Eh, I'm not going to give you a promotion because you're a Christian. Do you honestly want to go before the Lord? And he said, what did you do? Oh, I was being so persecuted, Lord. They didn't give me a promotion at work because I believe in you and I have a Bible. That would be fine and dandy, folks, if that was really persecution. But you can't say that when you look around the world and you see what is happening anywhere and everywhere. Persecution is on a continuum. There's light persecution and strong persecution. But when it's screaming at you every day that this is the end, we're all going to die, they're going to take away everything, all our rights are going to go. We have rights in our country, in our state, in our city, in our church that are unthinkable in the history of Christianity. So, you have to make a threat assessment. You know, that's what leaders are for. They're to tell the people around them, hold tight, don't worry, let's be patient, let's, let's take it, or let's charge. Here's the direction, here's the way we should go, here's what we need to do. This will honor our God. Saul could have turned around and told those guys running away, All of you are free to go. Run. Run for your lives if you want to. Or stay with me and the God of heaven and earth who with a word can destroy all the Philistines. Will you trust me? And then finally, what I already told you, the reaction of the leaders makes a difference. Saul was compelled. This word compelled, he felt felt, uh, pinned down. He felt like everything was closing in on him. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against me. And the way it's constructed in Greek is, the gates of hell are being assaulted by the kingdom of God and they will not hold. But instead, 
We see the church, and I'm sorry, the American church is like scared out of its wits right now. Because they think the devil is closing in and oh, if we don't do something, if we don't fight, if we don't do this, if we don't, we're going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. How can you possibly lose when you've already won? Somebody please help me here. I'm, str- I'm drowning. How can you possibly lose the Christian message? Look what Steve Roberts presents with the best Best New Year's servant ever. The king has come. We just celebrated his birth. He is victorious. We can stand there all alone against every threat that is out there, assess it wisely, and not react. Listen to this. Fear of danger is ten times more terrifying than the danger itself. Do you hear that? The fear of danger is 10 times more dangerous than the fear itself. We find the burden of anxiety, man, does this speak to our generation? It was written by Daniel Defoe and Robinson Crusoe, for those of you that don't know how to read. We find the burden of anxiety greater. (laughs) Burden of anxiety greater by much than the evil at which we're supposed to be anxious about. You see, fear can make you ten times more fearful than the danger itself. The danger shows up, you should be fearful, you should do what you need to do. You need to prepare for it too. You don't just wait till it's at your door. But that's not what we're talking about. Saul had promises from God and he refused to trust him. He refused to listen. Phil Riken, who was the uh, pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia and is now president of Wheaton College, uh, the Harvard of Christian colleges, they say, addressing this issue of fear in the American church, he said this, the American church is fracturing in real time right in front of our eyes for one reason, fear. Fear. There's a misplaced, another author, contemporary author, there's a misplaced emotional urgency, fear. In parts of the church today, there's a longing for a past. Listen to me. I'm going to be 69 years old this month. So I know what we're talking about here, what this author's talking about. There is a longing for the past we should not seek to recover. Panic over a present that is laden with privilege and fear of a future. Listen to this. Fear of a future that is in the hands of a sovereign God. Do you see how upside down this is? It's crazy. And what kind of pastor would I be if I was afraid to get up here and tell you all not to fear. Yes? Or would you just like me to, to scream and cry and wring my hands and tell you, watch out, everything is against us? Which do you want? I see you don't want either. 
The fear, the danger, the threat against Israel was real. It was the Philistines. And they're right there. They were close. This is not like they were across downrange somewhere, you know, 100 miles, and you're going to shoot a guided missile and you don't have to see them. They're looking at each other eye to eye. They're close. And their combat was going to be hand to hand. And Israel had no weapons. You read that in the, other, in the next chapter. They had nothing to fight with. They were at a disadvantage. Tim Keller says this about fear of the Lord. This is where we're going to go next, and very quickly. The only way to, to, to combat fear is not just to push fear out and try to be courageous. The, the thing that we're going to talk about next very quickly is that you've got to fear something else. You have to find that. And I don't know if you all appreciate it here at Christ the King. I think you do, and I hope you do. But Dawson and I, Marcos and the other guys, I mean, we never, ever tell you to fix your eyes on anything other than Jesus Christ, the true King. Not to look at your faith, how great your faith is. Not to look at how great your performance is or how, you know, how, how handsome you are like me. I mean, it's hard not to, but... You know what I'm saying. In our church, I can't speak for other churches. We, don't, we point you to Jesus every single week. And that's pure gold, folks. You don't get that. A church that stands up and is courageous and says, don't fear, look to our king. And then we will rally around him and do the things that he does, the things that he commands. Keller says this, the the fear of the Lord is a life rearranging joyful awe. That's fear, a joyful awe, being so awed by God that you're just... You're just under the weight of him. And wonder, you look up and you think, my God, this, this life, this country, this world is going to last seconds compared to the eternity before us. Jesus, are you afraid to die? Everybody's afraid to die. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. What could we possibly be afraid of after that? Please, What? Death, hell, and the grave. Thank you. Somebody said nothing. You get extra credit. (laughs) All right. Saul forfeited his kingdom. Instead of living in fear of God, he lived in fear of the Philistines. And the consequence is that he was no longer to be king. Someone else would be chosen and appointed. You see, this is anticipating, and I want you all to remember that word anticipation. The Bible, the themes in the Bible are rich, my friends. I mean really rich. But anticipation is one of the biggest. It's at the top of the cone if you want to use the old cone of certainty thing. What is the heart God seeks? Well, it's in verse 14. You can see it up on the slide. This is a proactive, instead of reactive, it's proactive fear of God. See, you know who He is. You come to church, we tell you the glories of God, we sing His glories in our song, we confess His glories reading the scripture and our confessions. We do all of this and that's proactive. What we're doing is we're saying, I see who He is and I acknowledge that greatness and goodness even if it's not 
right in front of my eyes like the Philistines. I can see them. But I know He has given me His Holy Spirit. It's resonating with me. It's speaking inside of me, saying, Abba, Father. And and so we are able to respond, not react in fear, but be proactive in faith. Assurance. Patience. And obedience. Now your kingdom must end. This is the prophecy that Samuel is giving to Saul. And it's just the beginning. This is just the beginning. You're going to see in the next few weeks the fulfillment of it probably took some time, maybe a year, I don't know how long. Now your kingdom must end. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. You all know this scripture. Any of you that read your Bibles, you know. A man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him leader and prince of Israel because you have not kept the Lord's command. What does this mean? A man after God's own heart. Well, it can mean a lot of things, but here's here's the thrust of it. Here's the main thing. A man after God's own heart is somebody whose life is aligned with him, in tune with the heart of God. It doesn't mean you're perfectly obedient. You may not be perfectly obedient. You may be rebellious at times. You may commit sin at times. I don't know. But your heart is aligned with Him. In other words, He fills the windshield of your life. Not social media. He fills the windshield of your life. Not the cacophony of fear, mongering, and voices all over the world. It's not just here in America. Everywhere, everybody is being told, be afraid, be very afraid. Gaza means that Jesus is coming tomorrow. And so the pundits on TV, they get on there and they say, Gaza's blowing up. Oh my goodness, wait, Jesus is coming any minute. Well, I'm your pastor, I'm one of them anyway, and I'm going to tell you, liar, liar, pants on fire. You don't know when Jesus is coming. You know, Gaza is a horrible thing that's happening. The massacre on October 7th, horrible thing that's happening. But I don't know, folks, unless you've had your head in the sand, that stuff's been going on as long as man has recorded history. You just have it screaming at you in your face. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be afraid. But when that fear overtakes you to the point where you're constantly reacting, 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 your heart is upset, you're not at peaceful, you're not, you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go, should I sell my stock, should I get out of the stock market, should I put cash, I'm going to get some more guns, I need to order more ammunition, I'm going to get water, you know, food, I've got to have canned food. I'm not saying don't do those things. But it's the heart that goes with it. Is your heart aligned with God? Go buy all the guns you want. I don't really care. You'll probably shoot yourself. Get all the food you want. It could run out. But if your heart's aligned with God and tuned with Him and you're trusting Him that no matter what the winds and the storms of life are pitching you back and forth, you're staying the course. You're like Eugene Peterson wrote this beautiful article. I've given it to all the leaders in the church. The Harpooner's Calm. You know, you're chasing a whale. This is politically incorrect now, but you're chasing a whale. You're going to kill the whale with a spear. And everybody in the boat's frantic. They're rowing. They're hollering. They're singing shanties, sea shanties, and they're going. 
But the harpooner is in the bow of the boat. He's got his spear and his eye is on the target. He's not going to move. Just imagine it's an orc and not a whale. It's not okay for the people of God to get their eye off the ball. Yeah? Not okay. This is the difference that you're going to see between David and Saul. David faced all the same things. He made all the same mistakes. But he always, without fail, he listened to the prophets even when they crossed his will and told him in front of everybody that he was an adulterer and a murderer. He listened to the prophet and he said, I repent. Create in me against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart. You see, that's the difference. And that's what we're looking for. How do you do that? How do you and I do that? Well, we have to look at this third point, which is the heart of God or the heart of our king, if you will. I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to read a passage that's in chapter 14, the very end. But I want you to see how this entire narrative concludes. It's awesome. Listen. Saul secured, this is a conclusion to all this junk that happened. We'll talk about some of that next week. Saul secured Israel's throne. Saul secured Israel's throne. He fought against God's enemies in every direction. Moab, Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he was victorious. He performed great deeds and he conquered the Amalekites, saving Israel from all those who had plundered them. It's Saul he's talking about. And then he goes and he lists, we don't have time for this, but he lists Jonathan, his sons, and Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, and all these other sons that he has. And his wife, and his father, and his, his uncle, and his father's uncle Ner, and all these people that were his generals and his mighty men. He lists them all. Why does he do that? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is this. So that the people reading this narrative see Saul, unfaithful, God, what? Faithful. Why should you not react in fear? Because of the last line of this passage. Whenever Saul observed a young man who was brave and strong, he drafted him into his army. And it just leaves you there hanging at the end of 14. 15, chapter 15, Saul gets completely rejected by God. And chapter 16 comes the arrival of David, the shepherd. The text is telling us there is a king and we're to anticipate that king. Why not react? Why, how are you to be proactive in faith Assurance and patience. And I'm going to give you this, and I hope that you pay close attention. God's relationship to his people 
His promises, forgiveness, goodness, grace, mercy, love, are never in spite of our sin, our failures, our fears. Never in spite of those things. I hear people in church say, God loves me in spite of my sin. No, He does not. As if He could overlook sin. As if He could just say, oh well, ollie ollie oxen free. You're free from your sin. And I won't look at it because I'm such a nice God. So nice. So sweet. And Oprah Winfrey and I are best friends. And we're all mushy and we all love each other. And I'll love you in spite of. Yeah. Tell that to some mother of a child whose daughter was raped and slaughtered in Guatemala. And forgive him in spite of nothing. Listen. God's love is never in spite of our sin, our failures, our fears, never in spite of our disobedience, as if He simply overlooks it or sets it aside. God stays in relationship with you and I, with us, because He loves us. He forgives our sin. He covers our shame, never in spite of, but because of, in anticipation of, the coming of the true David, the true King, the one who you worship today, who told you do not fear. That's a command. That's not an option. I'm not telling you not to quit watching the news or any of that stuff, but you know what? Some of you need to do some careful, this new year, careful self-examination about what you're listening to, how many hours... Dawson and I get you for, what, I've been 38 minutes and 6 seconds, 7 seconds, 8 seconds, 9 seconds. See that? That's all I get. That's all Dawson gets. We don't get much time with you. What's going into your heart? Do not fear. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we love you and thank you. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff out there that is terrifying. And because it's so close, right in front of our eyes, it seems like it's just going to happen any minute. We're all going to die. Please help us to be wise, to assess the threats, to prepare whatever we need to do that's wise. Help us to look to you, the author and finisher, the completer of our faith, the one who promise never to leave us or forsaken even if we're alone and my goodness we're not alone you're adding to the numbers of our church every day and we look around and we see strength and courage please father help us save us have mercy on us according to your grace amen